We're going to finish up our series in Habakkuk this morning in chapter 3. You'll find that on page 787 in the Pew Bible if you want to use that. Habakkuk's one of the last books in the Old Testament. So if you find the book of Matthew, you could go towards the front of the Bible, three or four books, and you'll come to this little book of Habakkuk. So I, I trust God will bless us. I do encourage you, as I like to, to have your God's Word open as we consider His truth, and I trust that He will use this mightily in our lives today. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 16, hear now the Word of God. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. In the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Our Father, we are thankful for your word now. That we can consider its truths. We ask, dear Lord... In your kindness to us that we even consider today, um, your kindness given to us in this word, it might lead us to repentance, it might transform us and change us. We might for, forsake sin to a greater degree that we might find greater joy and delight in our Lord. So help us to see the truth, be impacted by it as we consider your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, six weeks ago, we started our our little study in the book of Habakkuk. We draw it to a close today. And if you remember, we started with a story of a missionary in the 1850s by the name of Alan Gardner. He was a missionary who wanted to reach a small tribe on a remote island off the continent of South America. And Gardner, along with six other missionaries, was dropped off on that island to begin their mission work with the resupply ship promising to return in four months. It did not. And week after week went by, and one by one, those missionaries starved to death. Uh, Alan Gardner was the last to die on September 6, 1851. His body was found a couple weeks later on the beach with the journal nearby. And you remember, we, we considered what he had wrote, the last entry in his journal. He wrote Psalm 34 in verse 10. This man who was starving to death wrote, young lions do not laugh, no, excuse me, young lions do lack and suffer hunger, yet those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then underneath it, he wrote his understanding of what was going on in his life. This man at death's door wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. We consider something like that, and it it bears reconsidering it, because it it is so startling and 
so foreign to us to think about this man who has really given up everything to go to this island far, far from home, far from England, and, and, and there to minister on behalf of God to a remote people, and, and, and there doing this service to die by starvation because the resupply does not show up. And, and, and we, we can understand in that situation, one might be filled with anger, one might be filled with worry, one might certainly be filled with confusion or fear. You know, one might think, well, God, what are you doing? Don't you see I'm, I'm serving you? I'm giving to you? I'm, I'm following you? God, have you not abandoned me here? Well, that, that all makes sense to me. But, but being overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God is foreign. And that, that, in that context, to me, is utterly astonishing and amazing. He evidently learned something about God, that he was able to truly rejoice in him in the midst of terrible suffering. It is a lesson that Habakkuk has learned as well. One of the most stunning passages in all of Scripture when he rehearses all the trouble that will befall them in the coming invasion of Babylon. And yet he says there in verse 18, Yet, nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is writing at a time when God's people have utterly abandoned God despite the constant warnings and exhortations by the prophets that are being sent to them. They've given themselves over to sin. They've given themselves over to greed. And God, in response to their unrepentance, their unwillingness to receive his forgiveness, is sending the Babylonians to judge them. This invasion is coming, and it will be terrible, raising the question that Habakkuk wrestled with, as we have seen in our study of this book, how do you, how do you face terrible consequences? How do you endure awful suffering? This is total deprivation, as you see in verse 17, he anticipates, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. Food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. See, so this is there's no figs, no grapes, no olives, no grain, no sheep, no cattle. That's that's in other words, that's your entire wealth. That's your that's your portfolio, right? That's all wiped out. There, there's no capital. There's no food. Total economic disaster. Total abject poverty. Total unbelievable suffering. How do you face that? Habakkuk faces it with poise. Habakkuk faces it with joy. That is possible. To live through that with triumphant joy. When everything's going wrong, all your prayers seem unanswered. You, I'm telling you by the authority of the word of God, you may have indomitable joy. Now, typically what we do is we have joy when things are good, right? When the cattle is in the stall and the fig tree is blooming, that's when we sing for joy. That's when we are filled with happiness. That's when we sense the goodness of God, right? When we want to be married and we meet the perfect person, right? When we, when we, we want, want a child and we get pregnant. When we need a job and we get one. When we want to be healthy and we, the, the surgery is a success. When things are good, oh, it's very easy to say, God, you are so good to me, right? Because what we often do, and I think rightly so to some degree, is we infer from, from good circumstances the goodness of God. But sometimes, well, none of these things happen, right? You're, everything you long for, everything you dream for fails to come. You're alone or sick or poor or suffering. And it's at those times, at least if you're anything like me, 
joy is elusive. Right? It's, you're not so quick to praise God's goodness. You may be quick to pray, but you're not so quick to praise God for his goodness. Habakkuk has somehow accessed the goodness of God independent of the circumstances of life. Isn't that extraordinary? Just like Gardner evidently did. He was not inferring God's goodness from good things. Somehow, Alan Gardner had direct contact, direct access to God's goodness, not, not mediated through the blessings in life, but just, just in God. And he was therefore overwhelmed with godness, God's goodness in this, this pit of trouble. I, I, I don't know. You ever been on a, taken off on a plane in the middle of a storm? And it's dark and, and, and rainy and the wind is howling and the thunder is rolling and you're, you take off and the plane is shaking, right? And, and the storm rages around you, but eventually, what do you do? You burst through those clouds and you get above the storm. And all you see, all of a sudden, wait a second, it's a brilliant, beautiful, sunny day, right? You, you get above it. Habakkuk has somehow broken through the clouds and the storm is beneath him. Paul calls it a secret. He says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if the grapevine is filled or barren, my friends, you can be content in God, your Savior. And yet, I think if we're honest, if I, if I know your heart at all, uh, most of us are not like that. Right? Uh, certainly, I'm not like that. This, to me, is rare. This, the, most of us don't know the secret which Paul is talking about. And disappointments and hardships and failures come, and many of us get worried or maybe even angry. At least, at least our joy is taken from us. And it's not easy to sing at those times. Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this passage, wrote like, or preached like no one, I think, can, saying, anyone can sing in the day. When wealth rolls in abundance around them, anyone can sing the praise of a God who gives an abundant harvest. Let all things go as I please. I will weave songs with flowers that grow along my path. But put me in a desert where there are no flowers, and how will I weave a chorus of praise to God? Let this voice be free and this body be full of health, and I could sing God's praise, but lay me in on the bed of suffering, and it is not so easy to sing from the bed. Give me the bliss of spiritual liberty. Let me mount up to my God, get near to the throne, and I will sing, yes, I will sing as sweet as angels, but confine me, chain my spirit, clip my wings. Oh, then it is hard to sing. I think that's true. It's hard to sing. Most of us are like Naomi. Remember when she returned after her great suffering? And they said, Naomi's home. And they said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Hi, my name's Bitter. That's what Naomi thought. Most of us are, are not like Paul and Silas who sing God's praises with lacerated backs and feet and stalks in a Philippian prison at midnight. We are more like Job's wife who say, curse God and die, and less like Job who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder, who, who do you identify with? Who, who are you like? Do you fly above the storm that you want to? That you want to be able to rise above the circumstances of life and have unshakable joy? 
That's what the Bible is offering. That's what God is offering. And I think any sane person here would gladly give a million dollars for that. I'd rather give, it, give up anything. If I could have joy despite the circumstances of life when nothing's going right, I'm filled with joy. The, the wonderful thing is I won't charge you anything for it this morning. It's right here in Scripture. Here it is. As Habakkuk fights for joy, he sings this song of faith, this song of joy. And maybe, maybe it would be good even now. Can we just pause for a moment and ask God to help us be able to appropriate the truths, be transformed by them that we shall consider this morning? Don't we pray? Father, help us. We read things like this and we, we hear these promises like this in Scripture and they just, they just seem so far out of reach. And so we ask and we beg you by your Spirit, Help these truths take root in our hearts. Do a good work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk sings this song here, as we considered last week, and we end this song knowing that he sings a song of deliberate joy. It's a song of deliberate joy. We've seen in verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, That's a bad day. This is, by the way, not hypothetical. This is what's happening. This is what, what is coming. The Babylonians will come, invade Judah, as God has told Habakkuk, and they will consume everything that supports life. They will pillage. They will destroy. They will capture. They will deport. And this fruitful land, the land of promise, will be left barren. Right? Like, as one had put it, like a horde of locusts, the heathen army would strip Israel of its beauty, productivity, and pleasure. This is the reality, verse 17, that Habakkuk faced. This is coming upon him. How did he respond? Well, we've seen there in verse 18. Yet, in light of this reality, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So Habakkuk says, take everything from me, but you cannot take my joy. And so the question is, how can he sing under such circumstances? Well, I think part of the clue is where is his joy found? What, what, what is his joy in? Does he say there in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the things of God. Or I will take joy in the pleasant circumstances in which God gives. Notice what he says again in verse, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in, in, in my God. Now, my friends, there is a big difference between having joy from God and joy in God. Right? Joy from God, and a nice marriage, a big raise, beautiful family, all the pleasant things, joy from God. We rejoice in those things, certainly. But Habakkuk says, no, my joy is not just simply from God, but more fundamentally, it's found in God. Habakkuk's joy, in other words, is being found close to God, not simply receiving God's gifts. And unfortunately, today, much of Christianity has, has turned this faith that we cherish into a quest for comfort and a quest for ease and a quest for purpose in my life and a quest for, for uh, fulfillment and a quest for security. And it's a term Christianity really in a quest for, for me and things that I want to make my life easy. This is what we see much of Christianity packaged today. By the way, it's, though it's modern, it's, it's not new. I mean, remember when God redeemed his people from Egypt and they're wandering in the desert after God, with his outstretched arm, delivered his people and his mighty works and 
and these former slaves in the desert are moaning and complaining because God has not given them circumstances in which they appreciate. Or even in the days of Jesus. Remember, the crowds are following Jesus not simply because they wanted to be close to him or hear from him or, or, or they wanted the fellowship with God or were seeking the mercy of God. They were, you know what they were seeking? John chapter 6, they were seeking bread. This man gives out bread. And not bread of life, just bread. And so they followed Jesus because they wanted bread. We've seen this over and over again. And Habakkuk says, no, you take it all from me, yet I will rejoice because I still have God. You can't take God from me. See, if what we want in life is ultimately to be comfortable, if what we want in life is to be beautiful and to be wealthy and to have a nice family, right? What Kind of our the American dream is to be fat and happy, right? We just wanted, you know, just everything to be easy and, you know, at least have all my bills paid for and there'd be really no trouble. It's kind of smooth sailing. I don't want too much, man. I just want a roof over my head and a refrigerator full of, you know, food and a nice spouse and some kids and that'd be fine for me, right? That Listen, if that's what we are seeking, when that's taken from you, you know what else is taken from you? Well, your, your joy. Your happiness, your stability, your poise. Your joy is fragile. It disappears whenever trouble comes. But what if instead our goal was to be close to God? Then, if that's our goal, if I could draw near to God, then then I could have joy in all circumstances, even trouble, because trouble actually does what? It draws me closer to God. It was George Mueller that many of you know cared for thousands of orphans in England in the 19th century, and he did it all by prayer, by the way. He had literally thousands of children to take care of, and he never asked for a single dollar. He just prayed for it. And, and miraculous event after miraculous event, his autobiography is utterly amazing, how God would just provide for these orphans just by uh, Mueller's commitment to prayer. Well, when M- George Mueller's wife was 57 years old, she contracted rheumatic fever. And this man of prayer prayed earnestly for her healing. She was not healed. She died when she was 57. The last verse that George Mueller read to his wife was Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And then he preached her funeral just a few days later from Psalm 119, verse 68. The text is, thou art good and doest good. That's the text he chose to preach over the untimely death, at the untimely death of his wife because he knew of God's goodness. He had access to God's goodness, and therefore he could find joy even in the midst of utter sadness and tragedy. Where is your joy? Do you find joy in God, or do you find joy from God? Do you have joy beyond your family and beyond your home and, and beyond your health and beyond your friends? May what... Newton wrote long ago, be true of us. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have lost all their sweetness with me. We want God. That's what Habakkuk wants. And by the way, this is living by faith. He's been transformed. As I shared last week, Habakkuk of chapter 1 bears no resemblance of Habakkuk of chapter 3. He now is walking by faith. God says in chapter 2, verse 4, as we saw, my righteous ones live by faith. Habakkuk is trusting God despite the calamity that's coming. And as a result, we see him truly living. He's living right now. He's rejoicing. This is the life in which God wants us to have, the abundant life in which Christ has come to secure for us, a real life, a life that finds our our delight in in God and and therefore is indomitable. It's indestructible. It's a, a joy that's found only if we live by faith. 
reminds me of uh, a famous sermon by John Edwards. In fact, it was his very first sermon. John Edwards, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the un- unimaginable, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but um, the American's greatest theologian, and it is no debate. He was 18 years old, by the way, um, 18 years old, preached his first sermon, and I will never preach a sermon like Edwards' first sermon. He had three points. It was on Christian happiness. In fact, you would do well to read it. you find it online. He had three points. First point was bad things turn out for good for the Christian. Second point is good things can never be taken from you. Right? The really good things, justification, adoption, the indwelling spirit. His third point, the best things are yet to come. And so he concluded, and he says, if you, you see, all, the only way to have this happiness in light of these things is if you actually believe them. You have to live by faith. And so Edwards concluded his sermon saying, therefore, you may look upon all the whole army of worldly afflictions under your feet with a slight and disregard. However great they are, however numerous, let them all join their forces together against you, put on their most rueful and dreadful habits, forms, and appearances, and let them spend all their strength, vigor, and violence with endeavors to do you hurt or mischief, and it is all in vain. You may triumph over them all by believing these things. See, faith believes God is mine. Faith believes God is control. Faith believes all the good things in which God has given me will never be taken away. Faith believes all the best things are yet to come, and therefore I can have joy. This is what Habakkuk is fighting for. You notice that this is a deliberate choice of his. Look again in verse 18. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is the language of choice. This is what I will do. And the reason I think he's writing it in this way because it's not natural. It's certainly not easy. That's why Paul commands us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. He always, he says, again, I say rejoice. Why is he commanding us to have joy? Well, because we often don't have it. It, 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 it. We don't do it. And so Habakkuk's saying, I am going to fight for this joy. This is what I'm going to seek after. I will have joy. You know, listen, your feelings, if I can put it this way, your feelings don't have brains. Your heart doesn't have a brain. It's a heart, right? And so what that means is you need to tell your heart how to feel. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, why are you so downcast, oh my, if I can put it in this way, oh my heart, oh my soul, he says. He says, he begins to talk to his soul, he begins to talk to his heart and say, why are you feeling this way? You should not feel this way. These, are, these feelings are inappropriate in light of the truth in which we believe. In other words, we, we can't simply command ourselves to be joyful. We can't just say, okay, heart, be joyful. No, you have to tell yourself why you should be joyful. You need to tell your heart, that your heart, you're lying to me right now. The feelings in which you are feeling are inappropriate in light of the truth in which we know. This is why the psalmist, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And what does he do? Okay, soul, let's remember all of his benefits, right? You need to tell yourself why you should have joy. Just don't tell yourself to be joyful. Tell yourself why. Consider, meditate, think, and, pro- uh, and, 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 and ponder all the promises in which God has given you. Let your heart be saturated by his goodness and, the, and, and his grace to you. The question comes down to is where's your focus for Habakkuk, though all these bad things are going to happen to him, his focus does not seem to be on his suffering, but on his, what he calls his Savior. God of my salvation, he says. 
He's clearly anticipating some kind of deliverance. We're not quite sure what salvation he's expecting, but, but we, of course, have far more information than Habakkuk did. We know that we will be utterly saved. We will live with God forever in paradise. And my friends, if that's all we had, if, if God never did a good thing for you and your life was full of misery, but he said, I will do this for you, I will save you from eternity in hell, and I will welcome you into my paradise where you shall live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in my presence, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my son, and you will inherit this earth. If that's all he did, would that not be enough? Should that not be enough for us? That's the God of our salvation. That we have faith in him, that we find our joy in him and what he has done for us. I remember when Jesus sent out his apostles for that preaching ministry. Remember that passage in Luke chapter 10? And they go out, and I'm sure they were very intimidated to go out without Jesus, right? And there they go off on their own for the first time, and, and they go, and they're to preach the gospel to the cities and go from town to town. And, and it's just this amazing success. And they come back. Remember they came back to Jesus and, and they say, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. Right? Now, you may not be aware of this, but for a pastor, that's a big day. Right? Casting out a demon, I mean, that is, that is like, that's pretty, I mean, I know, just to be clear, I've never met a demon, certainly never cast one out. I'm happy to keep it that way. But if I ever did meet a demon, I think it'd be pretty cool to cast one out. Don't you think that'd be, like, if you're a lawyer, that's winning the case. If you're a real estate agent, that's selling the five houses, right, in, in a week, right? That's a big day. Right? And they come back, and they are just floating off the ground, so you can't imagine. We are talking to demons, and they are running from us. They're terrified from us. And they say, Lord, this is what's happening. Remember what Jesus says to them. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. That's what he says. Why? Well, there might come a day in which they are not. There might come a day in which the church is not growing, but shrinking. There might come a day in which the church is not united, but fighting among themselves. There might come a day when you don't sell the five houses, or you don't get the promotion, you lose the job. Circumstances can change. Don't just re- don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. What does he say? Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. You are mine, he says, and I am yours, and forever shall it be. So root your joy in that truth, for that can never be taken from you. That is yours forever. Circumstances will rise, circumstances will fall, but forever you are mine. This is what Habakkuk is discovering. I'm yours and you are mine. I have joy in my God. And I don't care if things are good or things are bad. I'm going to fight for joy in God himself. In fact, I don't know if you realize that this passage in Habakkuk 3, 17, 18, maybe you've heard this, is often read at weddings. It's an interesting passage. Um, You're talking about how, how everything's going bad and yet fighting for joy. And the point is to emphasize the vows in which a husband and wife make when they say, husband says to his, to his wife, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health, forsaking all others till death do us part. I'm yours. I'm yours when things are good. I'm yours when things are bad. 
I'm yours when we're happy together. I'm yours when we are fighting. I'm yours when, when we are rich. I'm yours when we are poor. I'm, I'm yours when everybody's healthy, and I'm yours when everybody's sick. We are committed together. You see, that's simply just a reflection of the commitment in which we have with God, the, the covenant which binds us together with God, right? That, that God is, is with us for better or worse and for richer or poor and sickness and health. God says, I, I belong to you, and you belong to me, and we need to tell ourselves these truths in order to fight for joy. I'm yours, God. You're mine. Just like William Cooper, the great hymn writer, did, pondering Habakkuk 3.17, he wrote, as only he could, though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit shall bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God, the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice, for while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice." Um, friends, what are your those? I, I assume most of us are not dependent upon a bunch of sheep out back. What are your those? Though I'm still not married? Though I'm still not pregnant? Though I'm still not healed? Though I can't pay the mortgage? Though I haven't spoken to them in years? Some of you li- are living in the midst of those, those, those. Some of you... Uh, those, those are coming to you. When they do, how will you be joyful? My encouragement to you this morning is before that day comes to learn to find your joy in the Lord. Learn to fight for joy in Christ. And by the way, when you do, you will realize like Habakkuk that joy does not mean you do not feel the pain or experience the trouble. And consider secondly and far more quickly that this is a song of stunned awe. Look at verse 16. I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. What we learn here is that this man who just says in verse 18, I'm going to rejoice, there in verse 16 says, I'm, uh, you know, my body's trembling, literally my bowels. His stomach is upset. His legs are unstable. His lips are quivering. He's crying. He's weeping. What that means is that having joy does not mean that you don't have grief. So why is he feeling this way? Well, look in the first two words in verse 16. I hear Right? Well, I hear what? I hear of this judgment that we have been focusing on. From Babylon coming, I hear of the impending disaster, right? Which he goes on to to survey in verse 17. He he discusses all that could go wrong, all the suffering that he will endure. He's going to lose everything. The invading army is coming. Right? Or for us, it might be your home is taken away, or the sickness is severe, or the family falls apart, and he thinks about all this trouble that's going to come upon him, and his body trembles from head to toe. He's filled with grief. He's afraid. Now you may say, wait a second. (laughs) You spend, what, half an hour telling us he's full of joy? Right? What do you you mean he's full of grief? What do you mean his body's trembling? Well, what we, and this is so important for us, what we see is for, for a Christian, joy and hope and faith can exist alongside of grief. That, that, that crying, he's crying, shaking like a leaf, can't stand on my own two feet. And the, look what else he says in verse 16. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. Right? So crying, and I'm at peace. Ah, fascinating. What? Because we think, wait, no, no, no. You either tremble or you have joy. 
right? You can't, you can't have both, right? And, and so Christians, we often, this is what we do. When, when, when someone faces trouble, we say, well, you just got to trust the Lord, which what we mean is, well, you, you, there's no shaking. There's no trembling. There's no lips quivering. There's, there's no grief, right? You just don't let it get to you. You, know, you got to believe the truth, and therefore it shouldn't bother you. Friends, that's not Christianity. That's called stoicism. You know, Job rose. You know what he did? He rose. He tore his garments. He dumped ashes on his head, fell upon his face, right? And, and the Bible says, and Job sinned not. Now, can you imagine meeting someone who encounters great grief and our brother or sister in Christ, they tear their garments and they walk over to the fireplace and they just start throwing ashes upon themselves. We would think, man, pull it together. You're a Christian. Don't you know, don't you believe this? I mean, you're going to heaven. What's the problem here? Right? We say, come on, trust the Lord. You're not trusting the Lord in, the midst, in this. And no, what we see the Bible tells us is, is that we grieve. Yes. Listen, divorce is terrible. Cancer is awful. Death is a tragedy. Grieve. But not like those without hope. In fact, I believe grief and joy for the Christian, they hold hands. In fact, I think grief will take you by the hand and lead you to his friend joy. In that time of grief, you will discover truths about God you could only know when the field is barren. You could only know when the stall is empty. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? And Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, sent to Jesus, asked him to come heal him while he still was time. And Jesus, the Bible says, because he loved them, waited for four days to make sure Lazarus was dead. And he gets to the tomb there, and he meets Mary. And Mary, Mary tells the truth. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have come early, but you didn't, you would have saved him. And she begins to weep there at the tomb of her brother. Now, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to say to the dead man, rise, and Lazarus will get up and walk out of the tomb. And to the great astonishment of hundreds of people who witnessed this. So he's about to do this. And there he's side by side with Mary before he does this. And you know what Jesus does there? Does he look to Mary and say, no, 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 Mary, don't. Don't weep. Don't you know what's about to happen? No, no, Mary, you have to trust me. Mary, Mary, pull it together, Mary. Mary, where's your faith, Mary? He doesn't do any of that. You know what Jesus does? The man who's about to raise the dead? He weeps with her. And there the Lord and Mary, shoulder to shoulder, and the tomb of the beloved are just weeping. You say, Why? Why does Jesus weep? He's about to raise this man from the dead. He should be exhorting her to have joy and delight. Why weep? Well, my friends, if, if we already know he loves her. The Bible tells us so. And if, if, if you love someone, when they weep, what do you do? You weep too. And I believe in that moment that Mary experienced a fellowship with Jesus. Two, two, two people just love with one another, just weeping over the sorrow in which they face. She experienced a fellowship with Jesus she would have never experienced if that trial never came. 
And I believe that's the greatest thing God could give her. I think that's why it says he loved her, therefore he waited. Because he wanted to give her more of himself. He wanted to walk with her in that trouble. Peter says that kind of knowledge and understanding of God is more valuable than gold. It's better than even answered prayers. And some of you, by the way, know this. Know this fellowship. Some of you have been pushed by suffering into greater fellowship with God. That grief will take you to God. And God will comfort you in a way in which you have never experienced before. That in your grief, therefore, you might have joy. So even as you die, you may write in your journal, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Even when you preach your wife's funeral, you might preach, thou art good and doest good. And by the way, this is just not true for Habakkuk. It's just not true for Mary. It's not just true for Job or Ruth. It's true for Jesus, who was in the garden, was he not? And he was staring into the darkness of the hell in which he was about to be plunged he was, he, was, he was to experience the unmitigated wrath of God, not for his sin, but for my sin and for your sin. And he, looking into that cup of God's fury, he prays. The Bible says he's yelling, God, there's got to be another way. Isn't there another way? He's under such stress that the capillaries in his brow are bursting so that he is sweating great drops of blood. He tells his, his closest friends, he says, my soul is in such agony, I'm dying right now. Now, this is what the Lord is dealing with. We might say in the language of Habakkuk, the Lord Jesus, his bowels trembled, his lips quivered, his legs shook underneath him. And yet we also read, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. See, grief need not be an enemy to joy if you let grief carry you to the Lord where you will find strength as we consider lastly that this is a song of triumphant strength. Notice what he says in verse 19, the last verse in this song. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The high places in battle is where you want to be. That's the safest place to be. Upon the cliffs and the peaks, he says, my feet are like the deer's up there. I'm sure-footed. I won't not stumble. I don't know if you've ever seen a mountain goat or a bighorn sheep walking up the side of a cliff. And I was backpacking in Montana a number of years ago, and, and every day I just saw more and more of these animals. I just, it was un- unbelievable. It's like the cliff is like this, and just up they go and down they go. And, and this is what Habakkuk's envisioning. He says, I'm like that. I'm strong and stable. I'm treading upon the heights. I'm moving through life's troubles. I like the imagery one pastor used. Trial, strife, suffering, circumstances that are hard, dark nights of the soul, loss, mourning, evil, sickness, injustice. It piles up like a mountain that seems overwhelming and daunting, but God makes my feet like a deer and I climb. I climb to the heights and I stand above it all and I see what God sees. You see, when we live by faith, God becomes our joy, and therefore we do not stumble through trial. We actually find strength in it. We find the strength to climb above the troubles and the pain and the disappointments of this life. This, of course, wasn't simply for Habakkuk. As you see, the final words in his book are instructions to the choir master. He says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. As we considered last week, this is a song. Therefore, this is not simply a personal resolution of a man of God. 
This is what God wants for God's people to experience. He wants God's people to sing this song. And so I pray, may the chief musician let us not remain songless. Instead, may he tune our hearts to sing his grace. As he did in the life of C.J. Mahaney, some of you know Pastor Mahaney's writings in the life of his sister, in his little book entitled Humility, a wonderful little book, he writes a few Christmases ago as our extended family gathered to celebrate my sister Sharon's husband, Dave, mentioned some physical difficulties he was experiencing, so I gathered the family members to pray for him. No one imagined the source or the severity of the symptoms he described. Within a week, Dave was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was a particularly aggressive tumor, as we soon learned. After surgery and unsuccessful chemotherapy, it wasn't long before Dave was brought home from the hospital and placed under hospice care to await what now appeared inevitable and which indeed quickly came. The following July, Dave went to be with the Lord. During those last few weeks, Dave's bed was set up in the center of their living room where a parade of caring people visited. Sharon would often sit beside him and stroke his hair, whether he was conscious or not, speak into his ear, telling her bud what a wonderful, godly husband and father he was. On one occasion, a relative of Dave's was visiting, a man who was not a Christian. As he watched Sharon caring for Dave and thought about Dave's relative youth and the children he would leave behind, anger seemed to well up within him. Anger directed at God, the God whom Dave and Sharon were professing to believe in. He asked Sharon, why aren't you angry? Suffering raises questions like that, doesn't it? Why do people like to suffer? Those are hard questions. Those are perplexing questions. Why is there evil in this world? Why is there suffering in this world? And as difficult as those questions are, I would say that that is not the most perplexing question. I would suggest to you that, as others have, as Mahaney did, in light of God's holiness and my sinfulness, the more perplexing question is, why don't we suffer more? Not why don't we suffer at all? I think John Edwards was right when he said, how far less are the greatest afflictions that we meet in this world than what we deserve. That's more perplexing to me. Why does God be gracious to me at all? Why does God bless me at all? But still, that's not the most difficult question. I think the most perplexing question in the world is not why do I suffer or why do you suffer or why do they suffer. I think the most challenging question in the world is why did he suffer? Why do the innocent ones suffer? Why did the righteous one of God suffer? I hope you know why Jesus suffered, though he had committed no wrong. The sinless one suffered because he was receiving the full fury of God's wrath upon himself for sinners like you and me. So that we who have rebelled against God can receive God's forgiveness and mercy. He longs to be merciful to us. He longs to forgive us. That's why he put his son on the cross. Not because Jesus had done anything wrong deserving that, but because you have and I have. And three days later, he, he raised him from the dead to show that, that this sacrifice was received by God and that all who confess their faith in him and, and trust in him and bow their knee to Jesus Christ will be saved, will have the forgiveness of God. That's what he offers you. I mean, this very moment I stand here among the authority of the word of God, tell you, God will give you eternity 
with him if you will yield your life to Christ, if you will trust in him. If even now you would, you would pray to him, God, I, I have rebelled against you. I have gone my own way, and I, have, I turn from my sin, and I yield my life to Jesus. I trust that he has died for me and rose from the dead, and I surrender everything to him. Forgive me. Make me yours, and he will answer that prayer. You can be saved today. You can have eternal life today if you would submit yourself to him. And for us Christian, because of Jesus... Uh, we, like Habakkuk, can take this journey that we've seen him over the last six weeks, this journey from complaint to contentment, this journey from, from trouble to trust, this journey from frustration to faith, that we can sing for joy in the night as we look towards the eternal dawn in which Christ has died to secure for us. In fact, that's what, what we want to celebrate here at this Lord's Supper meal that Christ has paved a way for us, that uh, no matter how great our trouble is, that we are his and we belong to him and he belongs to us because of his great work for us. And so my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper in which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. We come in remembrance that Our Lord Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death on the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never forsaken by him. We come to this meal to have communion with him. Come to commune with Christ, who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the taking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto eternal life. The cup we take, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to this meal in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and a foretaste of the heavenly feast of which we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come, when with unveiled faces we shall behold him and made like him in his glory. Will you now pray privately as you prepare your hearts for this supper meal?